This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarter Bin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic book collection, which I occasionally will select at random. Any book from my comic book collection is eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents? Or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 165th episode of the Quarterbin Podcast, we are looking at the Shatter Special from First Comics, cover dated June 1985. But first, a little feedback. Last time, I was joined by Rob Myers to talk about an issue of Brave and the Bold. And on that episode, we asked for some help from our official network physician. We had some serious questions on Batman's use of a well-aimed karate chop to restore Green Arrow's mental wellness. And Dr. Ange replied, Karate chop medicine was a whole semester because you needed to learn all of its uses. One day, Professor, should we meet? I'll demonstrate. (laughs) Yeah, I can see it now. It's like the second day of a con up there in the New England area. I tell Ange that my throat is a little bit sore from, you know, maybe talking too much the first day of the convention. And the next thing I know, the last thing I remember is Ange's cry, Hi-ya! It could happen. (laughs) Billy D of the Into the Weird podcast, wrote in, Fun episode, Prof. I love Zany Haney and Apero. Favorite DC creative team ever. I know. It's weird. (laughs) We would expect nothing else, Billy. And Sir Martin from the excellent comics review blog, Too Dangerous for a Girl, wrote in as well. Great show, Professor. The episodes are even more special when you have a chum and I loved Rob's insight and humor. Thank you, Martz. Sorry to disappoint you on this one, because, you know, it's just me. <laughs> Martin said he bought this issue as a kid and found it most disappointing. The cover promises four famous co-stars, but two you could see Batman with almost every issue of JLA, and the other two were villains and ones who are always in Batman stories. At least in Brave and the Bold 100, the four famous co-stars, quote-unquote, were all heroes. Heck, Joker had been the guest star at least twice previously. The Joker, a guy you could see in any random issue of Detective Comics or Batman, where's the novelty? And don't give me four famous co-stars in a deadly dull font. I want dynamic logos. That is definitely one thing we've all learned about you, Mark. You like your fonts and your dynamic logos. Stay tuned. We may have use of Mark's expertise in this area later. He continues by saying, It seemed to me every time I picked up a Brave and the Bold, it was the same old people. Wildcat, Green Arrow, Metamorpho, Dead Man, Sergeant Rock, The Creeper. Boring. Uh... Sir Martin, did you just diss Creeper? You really want to start a fight with Ange, don't you? 
And yet, Sir Martin continues, I have two published volumes of the B&B Omnibus and the third on order, What is Wrong With Me? Yeah, what is wrong with me? The cry of comic fans everywhere. Well, they don't look half good, thanks to Jim Apero. And eventually, Zany Haney left, and the stories got less loony. I'm not a fan of Earth B. Well, thank you, Martin, for those interesting and controversial comments. Manuel Carmona of the comic Project New Wave retweeted the episode with this commentary, One of my favorite podcast networks just uploaded a new episode. Give it a listen. Thank you, Manuel. Social media love for the last episode came from the We Love Comics Facebook page. Sir Luke Giaconetti, Mike Peacock, Michael T. Geist, Vic in Phoenix, James Williams, Manuel Carmona, Pat from the Longbox Crusade, Robert Ludwig, the most sane man among us, Chris Lydon, Clinton from Coffee and Comics, the DC Now podcast, Dave's Comic Hero blog, Laurel from the Hunters podcast, Paul from the Collected Edition, Baby Skeletor, Booker T, Drew from Comics for Fun and Profit, Ed Moore from Teal Productions, and our listeners of the year, the kind and generous Sutherlands from the Rad Adventures Network. Let's take a break here, play a promo, and when we get back, we will be visiting the middle of the 1980s. Hmm, I crave superheroic content. Let's see what's on. I want you to tell all your friends about me. What are you? I'm Batman. Mm, nah, I don't think so. I'm Batman. Mm, not really what I'm looking for. I am vengeance. I am the knight. I am Batman! Ugh, absolutely not. This is Robin the Boy Wonder. I'm Batman. Aha, now that's more like it. If you see Adam West as the one true Batman, then this is the podcast for you. Tune in every other Thursday on your favorite podcast source to hear Tim and Paul discuss the 1966 series and everything connected with it. What's the podcast called? To the Batpoles. To the Batpoles. To the Batpoles. And we're back. Shatter Special number one had a cover price of $1.75, and right below that cover price on my issue is the bright yellow sticker from Half Price Books with the lovely price stamped on there of 25 cents. Man, I really miss the days when the half-priced locations near me had quarter books. Now, the date on the label means that this one hit their store in April 2014, and I probably bought it within a few months of that. And finally, after a seven-year wait, this one got called up to be covered on the show. And at a very reasonable 85% discount off that original price. The computer-generated cover, and that is important, by Michael Seintz, and it shows a man in a vest against an urban background with a few bits of futuristic design tucked in here and there. The man is facing us 
firing an oddly shaped handgun type of weapon at us. And all of this is occurring in dot matrix glory. The story, which has no title or credits within the issue, is, according to the text piece on the inside cover, written by Peter B. Gillis, with art, computerized art, mind you, by Michael Seintz, with thanks to Apple Macintosh. And in case I forgot to mention it, across the top of the cover, this comic proclaims itself to be the first computerized comic. We start with our lead character hunkering down behind his vehicle. Bug bombs are crawling all over his car, screeching on all frequencies. He is Sadir Aldin Morales, a.k.a. Shatter. The snipers are VVR veterans for Vietnam Reconquest. They're still burned that they'd lost the referendum to make Vietnam the 53rd state after Puerto Rico and Hong Kong. In case you didn't realize this was a future sci-fi comic, Shatter manages to take out one of the snipers and dive into his vehicle, a flying police car. In case you didn't know this was a future sci-fi comic. Analyzing one of the hand-sized bug bombs, Shatter sees that they use a rat brain, cheaper than a microchip any day. We learn that police these days are independent contractors, and as far as the Daily City Police Corporation is concerned, Shatter is Jack Scratch. A temp has many names for many jobs, and usually keeps his real name secret. Today is payday for Shatter, and his pay for this week in August has cleared. Pay of $28,032.13. Not one of my better paychecks, but it would cover the rent and the heat. And in case you thought that was a misprint, Shatter gets a report of an item going on the auction block that he has been looking for for decades. Something that hasn't been made since 2034. A bit of $75,000 should be enough to take this rare canister of Coca-Cola syrup. Pure. Original. My one gourmet weakness, Shatter admits. I'd love to have that, but I just don't have 75000 And then, a police contract offer comes right over his view screen right after that. Pursue and detain mass murderer. Ammo allowance, computer time, miscellaneous expenses paid. Fee, $75,000. The answer to my prayer. A few clicks later, and Jack Scratch has a new assignment. But elsewhere, another man is not as pleased. What went wrong? Everything was set up for my bid. Who is this Jack Scratch? Well, whoever he is. He just made a big mistake. Shatter learns the basics of the crime. A woman came through a 75th floor window into an executive meeting of Simon Schuster Jovanovich and killed 15 managers with a machine pistol. Delightful. Stage one begins. Shatter heads to the Ravenswood tanks where he always starts his investigations Once built as thermal storage for Chicagoland's great solar future, the tanks 
have since been acquired by Chicagoland Alien Nation as their turf. Shatter changes the liquid crystal display on his vehicle so instead of reading police, it displays pro-alien messages. He asks the information tanks for the names of women recently renting high-rise vehicles and equipments who normally don't. Four names are on the list, and there was a promising one at the top. He manages to talk his way into getting a description of that woman, Joni Caucus, and her location, and he heads straight to the club where she has recently been seen, which is full of people smoking, in case you forgot that the comic is 35 years old. Stage two begins. Shatter thinks he recognizes her from the description and makes contact. That's her. I know it. She'd bolt or blow my head off if I followed her. But she's beautiful. He has secretly made recordings of Caucus's voice during the brief conversation, and he uses that to place a mass advertising call, trying to put through stage three. But he also uses the phone services to illicitly nab information about Caucus based on her voice print, a name and an address, Cyan Del Riata, in the Cold Street area, into stage four. And I could almost taste that coke. And that guy who was upset about Shatter nabbing the assignment, he has been following him every step of the way. The voice print gets him past one level of security at the girl's place, but he needs his blaster and some quick reflexes to get through the next. Now for stage. Oh, forget the numbers. Here we go. He finds her in white coat and tails, playing a grand piano, a gun atop the piano, along with a rose, the gun he recognizes as the murder weapon. I'm Jack Scratch, registered police, and you're under arrest. But she just won't stop playing. Some gunfire gets her attention, and after a brief scuffle, Shatter takes her into custody. But she wants to explain, there was a reason. It was my lover. He scoffs at this. It's always the lover. But she goes on and talks about advanced RNA transfer and how skills can now be moved from one human to another for brief periods of time. The only drawback is that you have to take the person's brain out and put it in a centrifuge. They used that technique on her lover, so she killed them and stole his RNA back. I injected it myself, and for over a year, I'm going to play his music. Shatter agrees that this is creative, but still, she's coming with him. But the guy that's been shadowing our hero bursts in. That lady stole something of tremendous value to my employers, and she's going to pay with more than her temp ID. After he and Shatter attempt to negotiate for custody of the woman and argue about Shatter's focus on getting paid for this job, we see one of those bug bombs from the start of the issue climb down out of Shatter's pant leg and up the other guy's pant leg. And at the top of the last page, that other guy 
he explodes with a whoop. But Joanne Caucus or Cyan Dalrieta runs away. Halt, Shatter says. I order you to come back. He levels his weapon at her. And then changes his mind. And she gets away clean. Seventy-five thou. But it's been too long a day with too many questions. But boy, I could do with a Coke right now. The end. It's been a while since I talked about collecting comics during my college years, and this might be a good time to revisit that era. I attended the University of Richmond in the capital of Virginia, and that first year I didn't have a car. But there was a shopping center just up the street, which I went to because that's where the nearest grocery stores were. Now, you could go cheap, shop at the Super Fresh, or if you're feeling more upscale, go with the local grocery chain Ucrops. You can guess which one I lean towards. And in that shopping center, down a little alleyway of small stores that also had the barbershop, was a comic shop. Now, channeling my buddy, J. David Weeder, I pulled up a MAPS program, and according to that, the walking distance from my dorm to that spot in the shopping center was 1.4 miles. Very easy walking distance. If you look through the Marvel comics from the 80s and into the 90s, they had a regular ad, usually a half page, if I remember right, called the Marvel Comics Mart or something like that. And on most of those ads, you can see these in, in, in back issues to this day, of course. If you look under Virginia, you'll often find Dave's Comics in Richmond. And that was the store that I went to in those days. And that store, Dave's Comics, had a very long run, surviving all the way until Dave's passing, which was about five years ago. And back in the mid-80s, what Dave's Comics had was a ton of indie books on the walls from publishers like Innovation, Pacific, First, Caliber, Comico, or Kamiko, and never have really gotten a definitive word on just how to pronounce that one. And I guess I was ready at that point in my life to experiment a little bit, to move away from straight old-fashioned superhero comics. So I dived in and bought a lot of those books, some in full color like this one, but also many in black and white. And I stayed in that area of Richmond after graduation, so Dave's was my LCS for seven or eight or nine years before the mail-order savings of Mile High Comics stole me away. And over those years, I bought a ton of these indie books, a lot of them of the sci-fi nature. Books that that I had never heard of, and perhaps that very few people have heard of. I'm just saying, most of these series didn't last more than a handful of issues. We're talking titles like Eternity Smith, Baker Street, Captain Paragon, Somerset Holmes, The Trouble with Girls, Bolt and Star Force Six, Evangeline, Axel Pressbutton, and no, I am not making up any of those names. 
of course, also in that time, I discovered a couple of my all-time favorites, John Sable Freelance and The Maze Agency. And also, one series that I was able to get a full run of, at least of the ongoing, Shatter. About six months after the special came out, the regular series began. Now, there were some backups in John Sable in the intervening months between this special and the start of the ongoing. I had all of those issues of Sable, and I was able to nab all 14 issues of the Shatter ongoing, and I still proudly own all of that material. That being said, I have to admit, I completely missed this issue, this special, when it came out. So when I saw it at Half Price Books, I gladly plunked down my shiny quarter for it, knowing that one day we would cover it here on the show. But I hadn't read any issues of Shatter since, I'm going to say, since the start of this current millennium. And that all brings up this one important question. After all of this time, what did I think of this issue? You know, when I read this series first, as a fresh-faced, late-teen college frosh, I was not as familiar with the trappings of old-school private eye stories, that noir background. So it's possible I didn't appreciate this as much at the time, for, for those elements at least. Maybe just the hard-boiled first-person narration, uh, that may have been all that I got. But this time around, I did think that many of those elements of the story were very well done. I don't know what experience Peter B. Gillis had with detective fiction, either as a creator or a consumer, but I think he got the basics of the genre correct. Down-on-his-luck protagonist. Femme fatale. The down-on-his-luck protagonist letting the femme fatale go at the end. (laughs) He got some of these basic tropes right. Uh, The clues and the mystery-solving wasn't the best ever, but all in all, well done. I mean, I'm not saying this is the most ingenious detective story ever. I'm a fan of Holmes and many other detectives. So I'm not putting shatter at that level. Don't, uh, don't misunderstand. But for a first issue, for a one-off, futuristic sci-fi detective tale that actually wraps up at the end, this was not too bad. Now, I should be cautious. I credited Gillis for this, but science deserves credit as well. There's no way to figure out the exact working relationship between the two, who did what. Gillis and Sines did collaborate on the creation of the comic, uh, the concept that was pitched to editor Mike Gold, and from the way that Gold tells it, they seem to have used a modified version of the Marvel method in putting the issue together. Gold gives us a full page on the inside front cover, talking about the creation of the title and of this issue. It was, in fact, Peter Gillis that introduced science Macintosh-fueled computerized artwork uh, to Gold, the editor. Science had been in comics for a good while, doing Epic Illustrated and other Marvel works in the traditional uh, comics art style. And in that text piece, Gold refers to Science as, quote, turning a nifty piece of hardware into the most revolutionary storytelling tool since the motion picture camera, unquote, 
adding, quote, I was at once astonished and extremely jealous. I'd been using a Mac for several months, producing Chicago Comic-Con ads and the like, and Mike's stuff left mine in the dust, unquote. I find it interesting that when this came back as an ongoing, and even in the John Sable backups, Peter B. Gillis was not involved. Michael Science is credited as a writer-artist for those stories, although he leaves after the first few issues of the ongoing. So we have 14 issues in the ongoing, and it is an odd collection of creators. It's Science for the first two, then other folk for the next two. We can call them fill-ins. Then Peter B. Gillis comes back and writes 5 through 12, and then the other folk, fill-ins, wrap up the series with the last two. Pure conjecture here, but based on being a comic fan for a long time, I imagine that when the notification came in about the book being canceled, Gillis moved immediately on to other work. Uh, Gillis was doing both The Eternals and Strike Force Moratory at Marvel, and conjecture, I certainly assume that the House of Ideas paid much better than first. Uh, but I bet there's a story in there somewhere about that history of, of creative shakeups in terms of the 15 issues of Shatter and the uh, couple of backup stories as well. Oh, earlier, I did refer to this issue as a one-off, and it certainly does tell a whole story, beginning, middle, and end. But when Gillis takes back over, For his run on the ongoing, the stuff about the RNA transfer and the corporation that was doing that, that becomes an ongoing part of the Shatter story. But again, it really does work here, just for the one-off nature of this, maybe we can call it this pilot issue. And in terms of it being a pilot, if I can use that analogy, you needed to not just tell an interesting story, but set it in an interesting world with an interesting lead character. And with a couple of quick, brief references, we get a feel for this world. We have the absurd prices for things, which speak to the amount of time that has passed, but also there's a little bit of hyperinflation that's occurred as well. And hyperinflation is a quick, and I think effective way, to indicate the instability of a society or an economy. So that totally worked for me. And the notion of Coca-Cola existing purely as a nostalgia item, maybe as the vinyl of its day, I can see that. Personally, I'm a Pepsi guy. Don't at me. But I guess I can approve of using Coke as the object of Shatter's nostalgic affection in this one. In the corporation that the woman infiltrates, Simon Schuster Jovanovich, That works on a couple of levels. First, the names Simon and Schuster probably sparked something in the comic fan's mind as the last names of a couple of classic Golden Age creators. That worked. But that's not the Simon and Schuster that was involved in this corporate merger. It's a pair of big publishing houses, Simon and Schuster and Harcourt Brace Jovanovich. So it worked on... A business sense as well. You could see this conglomerate in the creativity industry 
being interested in RNA transfer, at least the, the process described in the issue. But also, you do get this wink at comics fans, I think, uh, intentionally dropping the names Simon and Schuster. I already mentioned the flying car and a, and a few other of the tech things that Shatter utilizes in the industry. So all around, I think that's solid futuristic world building. Now, because it really matters to this book, we do have to do something we don't always do here on the quarter bin, and that is talk about the art. That is the distinguishing characteristic of this comic book. That's why it has any significance at all, if it does. And I guess that includes the lettering as well. Those are the two computerized aspects of this issue. And on the lettering, it does appear different from traditional hand lettering. I didn't have a Macintosh, so I don't know if that is just a standard Mac font or if it was something created or utilized specifically for this issue, for, for the comic book world. But however that font came to be, let me say it does exactly what lettering should do in a comic book, and that is to be legible. It was easy on the eyes and quite consistent. As far as talking about the rest of the art, I'm going to start with the logo, which is just the word shatter, in pretty straightforward lettering, but with a few letters off-center or offset, higher or lower, on the horizontal plane. And I wasn't sure what to make of the font. There's some simplicity in the way that the letters are designed, I think. So I did run it by the aforementioned Martin Gray, who, while being a newspaper editor, also runs the Too Dangerous for a Girl blog, and serves relatively geeky as both our official music critic and now our official logo and design analyst. Martin took a look at this and noted that he recognized the comic, although he, he didn't read it at the time. The logo is pretty decent for the era, with the shredded circuit board background and the unevenly placed letters lending a shattered effect. Okay, I've been looking at this logo off and on for 35 years and never noted that the letters in the logo were connected by circuitry, which is why I went to Martin on this. I love our community here. In, in terms of the rest of the art, I joked earlier and called it dot matrix, and it is definitely not that. It, it's a few steps above that. But there are a lot of dots in there, uh, mostly used for shading. And that's not an uncommon thing in comics, seeing dots in the art, uh, if you look closely. So that's not bad in and of itself. I do think there's some fine details that are missing here. That's probably the biggest drawback of this type of art, at least circa 1985. You get some things that are strong, I think. I think perspective, I think depth works well. But there is a limitation to how granular you can get with the detail with the line work. And I should add that the coloring, I think, is very good. I don't know exactly what the state of coloring was in 1985 in terms of how many colors were available to comics at that time, how expansive the palette may have been, uh, what those limitations would have been. It's quite possible that computer coloring, even back at that time, had more options. Not sure about that. But the coloring worked. Uh, all of the art and all of the technical aspects of this 
Kind of unusual comic. The first computerized comic. I think most of that stuff worked. So all of that talk about art, is that going to affect my verdict on this issue? The verdict on a Shatter special number one, I'm not going to deny the influence that nostalgia may be having here, both for the specific title, but also for the excitement of the era that this book evokes. But for me, admitting my lack of objectivity, I loved this. It's not my greatest Quarterman find of all time. That was a bagged and boarded issue of Blackhawk from the late 1950s. But in terms of books, I was excited to find in a Quarterman a book that I knew filled a hole in my collection and a book that I knew I'd want to cover on the show at some point. I think the mystery mostly held up. Character and world building definitely holds up. And even the computerized art holds up. So forgive my bias, but this is a quarter bin steal. That wraps up my coverage of the Shatter special, bringing episode 165 to a close. Next time, when I will attempt to be more clear-minded and objective, we're starting another Dead Universe miniseries based on an overwhelming victory in a Twitter poll. We're going to spend the next two episodes looking at the Impact line of comics. And next episode, we'll be starting that by covering two comics, The Comet, number one, and The Web, number two, from Impact, cover dated July 1991 and October 1991, respectively. If you have any questions or comments about this issue or the episode, sci-fi indie comics from the 1980s or the podcast in general feel free to contact me until next episode i'm professor allen and i'll see you in the quarter bin the quarter bin podcast is part of the relatively geeky family of podcasts Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.